Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. God's Word. Go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. So as we turn here, 1 Timothy chapter 5. A shepherd was looking after his sheep one day, and out of nowhere on the side of this deserted road, this new, brand new sports car, it comes flying up, screeches to a halt, and the driver jumps out dressed in a designer suit and designer shoes and designer sunglasses and designer watch and a designer tie, and, and he gets out and he asks the shepherd, he said, if I can tell you how many sheep you have, will you give me one of them? And the shepherd, you know, of course, you know, out there, he's like, this sounds like fun. Sure, uh, go for it, go for it. And so the young man, he parks his car, he, he connects his laptop to his mobile, he enters the NASA website and scans the ground using the GPS and opens a database with 60 Excel spreadsheets and logarithms and all of these things and, he, and these pivot tables and he prints out a 150 page report on this high tech mini printer. And he turns to the shepherd and he says, you have exactly 1,586 sheep here. And the shepherd goes, whoa, that's right. Man, I guess you get to have one of my sheep. And so the young man runs over, picks up an animal, takes it to his car. And just as the man is about to dry off, the shepherd asks him, he said, whoa, 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 wait, 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 whoa. If I can guess your profession, will you return that animal to me? And the man goes, why not? And so the shepherd says, you must be a business consultant. And the shepherd says, or the, the young man goes, whoa, how did you know that? And the shepherd said, very simple. Firstly, you came in here without being called. Secondly, you charged me a fee to tell me something I already knew. And thirdly, you don't understand anything about my business because instead of taking a sheep, you took my dog. Now, please, can I have my dog back? Listen, if there is one thing that shepherds know, is they know a sheep when they see one. They know the business of shepherding. They oftentimes, at a great sacrifice, they, they give of themselves to bless the sheep, right? The shepherd is there to feed them, to protect them, to, to lead them, to care for them. And, 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 and he's a great benefit to those sheep. But as we said last week, that benefit goes both ways. It is a two-way street. Yeah, the shepherds are to bless uh, the, the, the shepherds are to bless the sheep, but the sheep are to bless the shepherd also, all right? And so last week, we began to look at all sorts of ways that this happens with literal sheep. Literal sheep, we talked about the way sh uh, sheep bless shepherds. You know, you, they get wool, and they get lanolin, and they get meat and milk and skins and all those things. But then we took what we learned and, and, and from these real sheep and these real shepherds, and we applied it to the metaphorical sheep and shepherds of Christians in a local church and their pastors. And we found that this, this, this relationship is a two-way street as well, right? Pastors are certainly to bless their local flock. But as we turn to 1 Timothy 5, God through Paul here, he instructs us how we are to care, how the church is to care for its pastors, how it's to bless its pastors. So a local church is to be a flock of blessings to their shepherds and an 
A a healthy church understands this. I want to invite you to stand to honor the reading of the Word of God this morning. We're going to begin in the 17th verse here. In the 17th verse, I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter. The Word of God says this. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink any water. uh, Drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. These sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are cannot remain hidden. Thus ends the reading of the Word of God. Go ahead and grab your seat if you would this morning. So as we look here, our, our, our truth today is the same truth that we, we worked with last week. And it's this, is that a healthy church cares for its pastors biblically. And here in the text, here we're given four R's in a sense to help you to do that. Last week we looked only at the first R, which was to render the double honor of respect and compensation to your pastors. And so if you weren't here last week, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to the first part of this message. This is a two-part message, and this is the part two. I would encourage you to go back and listen to part one or to watch part one. Today, we're going to focus on the last three R's. And so here we go. Again, the first R, the first R from last week is to care for your, and caring for your pastors biblically is to render the, render the double honor of respect and compensation to your pastors. The second R is this, is to refuse to believe everything you hear about your pastors. Refuse to believe everything you hear about your pastors. Now, if you remember the Lord, when he was quoting, he was quoting um, Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah in Matthew 26, 31, Jesus said this, he said, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, as Jesus is saying this, he's actually applying it to himself as the great shepherd here, but it applies to all the under-shepherds as well, all of the pastors who are under Jesus Christ. You see, if a predator or an enemy, if he really wanted to have his way with the sheep, what does he do? Well, the most effective thing to do would be to get rid of the man who's protecting them, who's feeding them, who's, uh, who's caring for them and leading them and all the things that he does. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and vulnerable and and easy pickings. Therefore, you have to understand that number one on the devil's hit list is the pastor. Your pastors are number one. If he can strike the shepherd, then the sheep are his. Therefore, you need to understand that the pastors of your church have a big old bullseye on their back. It's not on their front where they can see it coming. (laughs) No, it's on their back so that the devil can incite you right where to stab them or where the enemy can stab them. It's really important here, guys. It's really important. John Calvin once wrote, 
none are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. And oftentimes the rumor mill, right, it's the devil's favorite weapon. Oh, did you hear what pastor said the other day? Did you see what pastor did the other day? Oh, I think their marriage is rocky, y'all. Oh, I mean, they're, they're mishandling their children. Did you see what they did? I think his leadership is suspect. I don't know. Something's going on. I think his doctrine's wonky. I don't know what's up. There's no telling what you might hear about your pastors. There's no telling, especially if there's somebody in the church that doesn't like one of them. I know it's hard to believe <laughs> that, that sometimes sheep don't like their shepherd, but it's often the case. Maybe they don't like his appearance. One of my preacher buddies one time, he looked nice. He was in slacks and a, and a, a white button-up dress shirt, long sleeve. I mean, he was crisp. And after the service, a sweet old lady, a sweet old lady <laughs> there in the church made, her, made a beeline to him and said, son, we prefer our pastors to wear a suit coat around here, right? She put him in his place. Maybe they don't like his personality. Oh, he's too quiet. He's too loud. He's too passive. He's too aggressive. He's too forward. He's too backwards. Whatever he is, you better believe the opposite is going to be held up as better. Maybe they don't like his family. For whatever reason, his wife doesn't measure up or his children don't fit their mold. Maybe they don't like the direction he's going. This is usually actually the issue, right? He's coming up against messing with traditions. Or maybe he's bringing people into the congregation that the congregation sees as less desirable. The wrong socioeconomic status, the wrong nationality, the wrong color of skin, whatever it may be. Or maybe he's taken a biblical stance against one of your family members. Oh, goodness, watch out, right? A lot of the churches where pastors serve, he doesn't know it, but they're all kin. Right, Brother Gary? We found this to be true. They're all kin. They're all cousins. Just check it out. And you watch out. You mess with family. You get the horns here, right? <laughs> or maybe he doesn't care about this thing, whatever it is as much as he should. So they, they don't like the direction he's going. Or maybe they don't like his preaching. He's, he's not funny enough, or he's not serious enough, or he's over everybody's heads, but he's not deep enough. He's too animated. He's too boring. But whatever the reason may be, sometimes sheep just don't like their shepherd. And here's the deal. What length would they be willing to go to to get rid of him? Because, I mean, in a congregational church, if the pastor's not a good pastor, you don't like your pastor, right? I mean, ultimately, you would say, well, it's your fault. You, uh, it wasn't a bishop, a bishop that put him here. It wasn't a superintendent that put him here, right? The congregation called him. But congregation, well, how far are they willing to go to get rid of him? Would they be willing to twist something that he said or exaggerate something that he did or make up a story about him or spread a nasty rumor about his wife? Or distort who he is by sort of dogpiling on his negatives while ignoring his positives. Beloved, these are things that pastors endure all the time. I mean, the stories are plentiful. They're heartbreaking. And oftentimes, listen, it's nothing more than a scheme of the devil. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That's why it's so crucial 
to follow God's word here in 1 Timothy 5, 19. Like this is really important here. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now remember, elders are the most biblically used word for the office of pastor in the Bible, okay? Elder is a pastor and pastor is an elder. And so if, if you're to love your pastor biblically, if you're to care for your pastor biblically, then you have to treat your pastor. You must refuse to believe everything that you hear about your pastors. And ultimately, this goes back to the golden rule. You don't want everything, you don't want people to believe everything they hear about you, right? So treat your pastor how you would want to be treated. Some of it very well may be true, and we'll get to that in a moment. But so much of it will be false. It's coming oftentimes from the disgruntled or the mentally ill or the gossip or the pot stirrer. Ken Hughes, he's, he's a well-known pastor. He tells of an instance when, when he was falsely accused. He says, when I was first in ministry, a woman who had recently spent some time in the state mental hospital began attending my college group. She looked deranged, her hair was disheveled, her eyes disengaged, and the poor woman was in ill health. Other than a group meeting, I, I never had a personal conversation with her, but she began to stalk our home driving slowly by at all hours, and she began to tell others, Pastor Hughes is going to leave his wife and marry me. Worse, some people actually believed her. He said, how insulting, how wicked, how sub-Christian to entertain, much less give credence to such slander. I was shocked that anyone would entertain such a thought about me. So beloved you are to believe nothing without evidence. The Bible here says that you shouldn't even consider a charge against a pastor without evidence of two to three witnesses. You don't entertain a he said, she said situation. No, it needs to be at least two or three witnesses, which comes straight out of God's law. Deuteronomy 19.15 instructs us here. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So there's, what, what he's saying here, what Paul is saying here, is that there's got to be proof. Because we are people of the truth. And one of the ways that you care for your pastors biblically is to give them the benefit of the doubt. To give them the benefit of the doubt. Your pastor is, is innocent until proven guilty. And by refusing to consider spurious accusations, you're not only protecting the shepherd, you're protecting the sheep, right? Strike the, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So as you protect your shepherd, you are actually protecting the sheep. But what if the allegations are true, right? That brings us to the third R, and caring well for your pastors biblically, and it's this. It is to rebuke your pastors publicly for persistent sin. So let's not be naive, right? Because we know of situations, right? We know that there are, are stories where pastors have been, uh, have, have allegations have been brought about for, against, 
And we know that those allegations were true. So let's not swing too far in one direction because we're being real. The men who stand in your pulpit and lead your ministries are but men in a fallen age. They are sinners being saved by grace. Guess what that means? They're going to sin. They're going to sin. And some will sin in big ways, which means that allegations of wrongdoing are sometimes real. They're sometimes true. John MacArthur writes this. He says, elders are to be protected from false accusations, but are not to receive immunity from true ones. Therefore, Paul, he, he, he addresses here the other side of the pendulum. Look at verse 20 and 21 here in 1 Timothy 5. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So I think it's important to first notice here, though, the implication here is that there has been an attempt to remedy the situation privately, right? In other words, in other words, notice he says those who persist in sin. In other words, they won't agree to their wrongdoing and they won't repent of their wrongdoing. We know well the process that's given us in Matthew 18 for confronting somebody in sin. And this goes for your pastors as well, right? This is for all the people of God. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 tells us this and instructs us in this way. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Notice that parallel right there to our text in 1 Timothy 5. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Or among them. And so, so after the pastor's been confronted privately on a couple of occasions with, with increasing witnesses, and he still doesn't turn, then you must, and let me say this again, you must tell it to the church. Or if the sin is on the level that it disqualifies him from ministry, you must tell it to the church. They must, it says here in the text be rebuked in the presence of all. It's for their own good. Listen, it, it, it's how you actually love them. To rebuke them in the presence of all, you say, well, preacher, that doesn't sound like love to me. It's biblical love. It's tough love. It's, it's godly love. It's not enough that they are allowed to just quietly resign and slink away to another church. And so many churches... They just do that, right? They're, they're afraid to follow what the Bible says here. And they allow a man to resign and maybe even send him off with a, with a big send away. And the congregation is going, what, what, what's going on here? Like, what happened? Sometimes he's sent away quietly, though. And that really confuses the congregation. So it's in the pastor's best interest. It's not good for them 
or the church. Look again at 1 Timothy 5, 21. It's not good for the church. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So the rest here is the rest of the church. That's what he means here, the rest of the entire church. Seeing their pastor rebuked for sin, what does that do? I mean, if the man who is supposed to be the leader of the flock of sheep is being rebuked for sin, if they're not letting him slide by, then what does that do for the sheep? It causes holy fear to come over the entire congregation. And it's a safeguard against sin within the congregation. It vividly demonstrates to them that sin is indeed serious. That sin is indeed costly. And our minds, they easily go to make a list of the big name Christian leaders who persisted in sin and paid dearly. We, we think of men like Mark Driscoll or Perry Noble, Darren Patrick, Ted Haggard, Doug Phillips, Jimmy Swaggart. These were all men who were mightily used by God but fell into habits and fell into hang-ups that were ungodly. Nobody ever stood up to them or lovingly rebuked them until it was too late and it cost them their ministry at least for a season. Thank God, thank God that some of these men did repent and they've been restored and they're carrying on meaningful ministry today. And that's important to say, guys, because again, if a pastor is found in sin, we don't just throw him away into the church trash. Our hope is that he would be first restored to God. And if able, if able that one day he may be restored to ministry, if he shows a track record of true repentance, but whether that, man's, whether that man ends up being guilty or innocent of the charges, Paul here uses about as strong a language as he can to say that above all, you had better be just and fair. Both ways, whether he's innocent or whether guilty, whether you believe him to be innocent or guilty. Look at verse 21 again. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. In other words, don't go easy on him if you like him. And don't go hard on him because you don't like him. And don't make up your mind until you've heard the evidence. This is how you take care of your pastor biblically. The final R to care for your pastors biblically is this, is to recognize new pastors cautiously. Recognize new pastors cautiously. Paul concludes here, verses 22 through 25. He says, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink uh, only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent elements. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So what, what he's saying here to us as a church is that, is that we have to be really cautious. We have, to, be, we have to, to cautiously recognize new pastors, men. I'm not saying a, a pastor who's coming into the church, who's been serving for years, but new men who are being called and, and set aside for the ministry. 
laying on of hands here, it signifies ordination in the ministry, right? It's the beginning of a man's ministry, recognizing for an office of a church, right? In this instance, the office of pastor, elder. And this should never be done in haste. We learned that back in 1 Timothy 3.6, where it says that a pastor must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. You see, new converts are untested. So we're not really sure who they are, what sort of character they have, what kind of abilities they have. Therefore, it's best for young men to be tested first and given opportunity to grow, an opportunity to prove themselves. You see, church, we do not ordain somebody on potential. We ordain them on practice. What are they doing? Who are they? That's what we ordain on. They're already doing what an elder does. They already are what an elder is. Otherwise, you may well be ordaining someone who will soon be in a scandal. John Stott writes this. He says, the best way to avoid such a scandal is to ensure the thorough screening of candidates before they're ordained. Now you must be thinking, how in the world is this caring well for the pastor? Because oftentimes, a man presents himself as called from God. God told me to be a pastor. And who are you to stand in the way of God's calling on this man's life? Well, here's the truth of the matter. Here's how it's caring well for them. Because it's striving to not put this person into a position that they cannot handle. That their gifting cannot fulfill. That their character cannot sustain. In the end, what ends up happening is that they not only hurt themselves, but they hurt the church that they're leading and the people that they're ministering to. James 3.1 tells us not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You as a church have been called by God to not lay hands on quickly, to protect this man from the stricter judgment of God. That's how this is caring well for him. And again, what if they come to you and say that they've been called by God? Well, you need to understand this. If that man has been called by God, it's a two-part calling. One is that internal, right? And I, I can remember that. Not, uh, 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 1999, 2000 in those years is when I felt that internal calling from God. I believed that God was saying, Ben, I want you to commit your life vocationally to the ministry. I remember those days. I remember those moments. I believe those conversations with God. But here's the deal. That's just one part of the calling. That's the inward part. The other part is that outward calling where the congregation, where the, the council of the saints, which is you guys, come alongside and say, yes, we believe that God is calling you. Yes, we believe that you are gifted. Yes, we believe that you are of such character that you can do what you believe God has called you to do. So ordination is not a rubber stamp. 
from the congregation just because a man said he was called by God. You as a congregation have to carefully weigh, is this man really called by God? And I've, listen, those are some of the hardest conversations you can ever have with somebody. Here's when they say, I'm, I'm called by God, and you have to lovingly say back to them, I've, I've had to do this. Brother, we don't believe that you are. And we're not saying that you won't ever be, but at this time and in this moment, you are not ready. And you know what I did in that moment, and what we did as a church in that moment, and it didn't happen here at Eastwood, it's happened in other churches. What we've just done is we have cared well for that man because we did not set him up for failure we did not set him up for heartache we didn't set him up to destroy a church maybe down the road so love potential pastors enough to recognize new pastors cautiously and you guys as the flock get to be great and tremendous blessings to your pastors. Here's my final prayer as the praise team comes. May the shepherds be blessed by the flock because they have been such a blessing, such a great blessing to the flock. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to be your savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live and he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned, which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. 
Thank you again for connecting with us, and I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.